invite you to turn in your Bibles to the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, beginning at verse 16. Coming close to our march through the confession of faith, we only have several chapters left. I thought it would be good for us to think for a moment, well, more than a moment, for a long time, about what it means to be Christ's disciples. So we want to look this morning at Discipleship 101. Here, the words of our God from the close of Matthew's Gospel. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The grass withers, the flower falls to the earth, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's look to our God for his blessing. Father, we pray you'd bless your word, the word which you sent forth, And the Lord Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we, by faith, now behold his glory, and we listen for the sound of his voice. Father and Son, we thank you for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. For without the Spirit, our hearts would remain cold and dead and darkened. But by the indwelling illumination of the Holy Spirit, we now see and pray that we would see more clearly. We pray that we would be kept from sin and from error and from distraction as we look to your word. We pray that we would not let the familiarity that we have with this passage keep us from thinking on it anew and afresh and reviving our hearts in discipleship and following after the Lord Jesus, because it is in his name we pray. Amen. I learned something this week. W5, that CTV news magazine, is in fact the longest-running news program of its type. It began in 1966. And more Canadians watch it than any other news program of its type. I didn't know it was still on. I guess I I haven't had a TV for so long, but I I remember watching it. You're going, what's that got to do with discipleship? Well, well, (laughs) it's not that W5 has so many disciples. That's not the point. The point is that I I want to borrow from W5's premise, their investigative journalism, the the five W's, (coughs) which you probably, excuse me, (coughs) are familiar with. The who, what, why, when, and where of discipleship. That's what we want to look at this morning. So I, I didn't even need to work on the alliteration. I just took it wholesale. We want to look at the why, what, where, when, why. I'm, I muddled them up now, but that's what we're going to look at uh, as we consider what it means to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are the disciples? Well, we read in the very opening of this text, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Who went there? The 11 disciples. 
And you remember, these aren't just 11 disciples. These are the 11 who have been designated as apostles. That is, they are eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. They've seen him after his death on the cross, his being entombed in the garden, and now resurrected. And we understand that shortly after this passage is written, he will ascend into glory. And they will watch him, and they will stand there, and they'll, they'll watch him go. And the angels will have to tell them, now get busy. <laughs> He's coming again. Don't stand there watching. He'll come back again, the same way that you've seen him depart. These 11 disciples are the apostles who are given the great commission here, but not they alone. We'll, we'll think about that as we work through this. But it's, those are the ones who are there. And they go to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. They follow his instruction. He's told them what to do, and they're doing it. And that's important for disciples, isn't it? Uh, when, when the teacher or the master gives you instructions, then you follow them. And that, that's what they've done. They've, they've gone to the mountain where they were directed. But then we have this strange little <clears throat> bit in there that some of them doubted. They worshiped, but, but some of them doubted. One commentator I read said, well, obviously there were other people there because none of the 11 would ever doubt. And I thought, wow, that's wishful thinking. I mean, yes, they're apostles, yes, they're... But wasn't one of them known as Doubting Thomas? <laughs> Didn't he insist on actually putting his finger into the nail prints and his hand into the, the spear-thrusted wound in his side? And, and Jesus accommodated his doubt. And wouldn't they doubt a few minutes from now, maybe, when Jesus was taken up into glory, and they, they wanted to know, is this the time for the restoration of the kingdom? They, they were still wondering about things. They didn't have everything together. And, and, and after this, they're going to hide again, aren't they? They're going to they're hide from the Jews until 10 more days have passed. Remember, Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, 40 days he appears to the disciples, and we're told about 500 others, and that's who some people say, well, those are the 500. They were there, and they were doubting. But the text doesn't tell us that. It tells us the 11 were there. And while they worshiped, some of them doubted. And then they're going to hide again from the 40th day when Jesus is resurrected until the 10th day after that, 50 days, Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, when in the temple... The Spirit comes upon them, and they speak, and they boldly proclaim the message of God's grace to those who haven't been really eager to hear it. <laughs> Their doubts are going to dissipate by and large, but they're still not going to become perfect. You know, we need to remember that. The disciple doesn't mean perfect, doesn't mean never doubts, doesn't mean always follows the Master, but should. And disciple does definitely not equate with apostle. Apostles were given a specific task as eyewitnesses. They were sent with a commission. That's what it means to be an apostle. Now, you could say we all sort of have a commission, but it's, and it's apostolic in that we carry the same message of the apostles, but we aren't given the same authority. We don't have the ability to drive out demons and heal the sick and raise the dead those signs that were given to them to authenticate their ministries in the, in the early years as the gospel went out. The disciples are not just this 11, not even just the 500, but today, all the 
believers in Jesus Christ can rightfully be called his disciples. It's sad that the name Disciples of Christ was taken on by a denomination that really doesn't practice discipleship to Christ. <laughs> Makes it kind of sad. But we should see ourselves as, as the disciples of Jesus Christ today. That's who we are. And that's what it means to be a disciple. It means to be a follower, a student, one who follows after a teacher. Jesus isn't the only one with disciples. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, we read about John's disciples. If we read on in Matthew chapter 11, the disciples of John will come to Jesus and ask him, are you the one? Are you the one we're expecting? Are you the one who was to come? They're the disciples of John. They follow after him. The Pharisees have their disciples. In fact, Jesus condemns them, doesn't he? He says, you go over land and see you. You're willing to travel all over the world to make a disciple. But then when you've made a disciple, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Yeah. Disciples were to be like their teachers. But it's important that we, we find the right master and follow after him. And Jesus is the, the master that we should follow, the one that we should strive to be like. The one who we are to bear his image even as he bears the image of the Father in heaven. We are to bear the image of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what we are to be, image bearers. That's what God has created us for and from the very beginning. That's who we're seen as, God's image bearers. Right? To be a disciple isn't just to be a good student, though. There has to be a, a commitment, a link, a, a tie. I hope I'm not going to get in trouble with this illustration, but if I do, I do. Say you wanted to be a, a disciple of veganism. I apologize already to the vegans in the room. You wanted to be a disciple of veganism. You learn all about it. You, you, know, you know what you can eat and what you can't eat. You know all the nutrition facts. You know what you should eat with this and that, you know, so that you get a balanced diet, you get enough protein, and you get all, all your vitamins and everything. So you, you're, you're a disciple of veganism. You know all about it, but you still like a steak. Are you really a disciple of veganism? Then, even though you know everything about it, unless you put it into practice, and you know some people go really crazy, right? I mean, I will not wear leather shoes. I will not, you know, any anything that they they take it to the extreme. And and well, I'm not in favor of that. You have to commend the people who actually go so far as to say, you know, I will not have any leather products. I won't have a belt. I won't uh, that's made out of leather. I won't have a, a purse. I want, you know, I, nope. That's because I'm a vegan. Okay. Well, so it is with Christian disciples. We can know all about it. We can have stacks and stacks of knowledge. We can have read every systematic... You could read Turretin and fully understand him and, and still not be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I remember hearing uh, Sproul's mentor, Jonathan Gershner, talk about a, a man who was the expert on Jonathan Edwards at Yale University, because that's where they have the, the archive and all the, all the, the, the things extant of, of Jonathan Edwards. And this guy was like the world's foremost expert on Jonathan Edwards. And he was an unbeliever. And, and Gershner would just shake his head at that. He, he couldn't understand. How can this guy study Jonathan Edwards, all his theology, all his philosophy, all these things about him, and still not believe in the God of Jonathan Edwards? He wasn't really a disciple of Jonathan Edwards. He was a scholar. We're not called to be scholars. Well, I mean, some of us are, but, but you know, that's not the calling. We're called to be disciples. And we're called to make disciples. 
who we are as disciples of Jesus Christ. And what we are is, is those who know him, who are committed to him, who want to follow after him. When? When are we to do this? Well, Jesus gives this instruction to his disciples shortly after his resurrection and very shortly before his ascension into glory. And he tells his disciples what they are to do. They, and when they're to do it, they're to do it now. Go! It's an imperative. It's, a, it's, a, it's right now. Don't wait. As I said, you know, when, the, when they stand there looking up into heaven, wondering, okay, that's, that was pretty spectacular. Jesus ascended into glory. He's gone from our sight. The angels have to come along and tell them, shoo, get going. You know, it's, 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 it's time for you to carry out the calling that you've received to be disciples, to be salt and light in the world, to be the city set on a hill, a, a beacon of salvation. You are to get on with it. You're not to stand out here waiting. You know, some of the saddest moments in church history, at least in my opinion, are, are times when, when groups have gotten the idea that Jesus is coming back and they know the day. And then they do silly things like climb up on mountains and wait for him. And you know, every time they do this, they're disappointed. And sadly, some of them don't stop. They just, keep, they just keep setting another date and another date and another date and another date. And Jesus doesn't come on those days. Now, is Jesus going to return on a day when someone's expecting him? I suppose that is possible. You know, people might keep expecting his return. That's not going to keep him from coming back. He's going to come back when the Father sends him back just as he came the first time, as the Father sent him, in the fullness of time. And in, in the second fullness of time, if I could put it that way, we'll have the second advent, the second return of Jesus Christ to earth. Not as a baby, not to be living a life of, sin, of misery for our sin. He, doesn't, he didn't have any sin in his life. He had misery, but he didn't have any sin. And then dying a sacrificial death. But that's all been done. When Jesus returns, it's, it's not going to be to bear sin, but to bear sinners into God's presence in heaven. That's why he's going to come again. He's going to come again to, to lift us up. He came the first time to pay the penalty we owed. He comes the second time to take us with him to receive his reward. It's all called our reward too, but it really, it's, realize that it's, a, it's an imputed reward. He's earned it. You know, we sing in one hymn, why should, why should I benefit from his reward? Why, why do I? Well, because God in his grace has determined this is the way he's going to do things. He's going to bless all those who are true disciples of Jesus Christ. Not those who have full knowledge of him, but those who are fully committed to him. Again, remember, they came, they saw, they worshipped, but some doubted. The ones who are doubted and say, well, okay, off you go. You, you, don't, <laughs> you don't get in. You doubt it. No, Jesus deals tenderly with those who are doubters. The man who says, I believe, but help my unbelief. We need to understand that this is, this is Jesus who is gracious and kind, who, who says, following from Isaiah, the Bruised reed, I will not break in the smoldering flax, I will not snuff out. The Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote a, a great little book about that. It's, it's really well worth the read. How, how tenderly Jesus deals with us 
in the infirmity of our sin and our weakness, our frailty of, of heart and mind. He doesn't snuff us out. He doesn't break us off. Oh, sometimes he, he bruises us. He chastens us to, to bring us back. Sometimes it, it seems like the, the flame is about to go up, but Jesus nurtures it and, and feeds it and breathes on it so that the flame grows. We are to be those who are eager to burst into flame for the cause of Christ. We are to believe that he is the Son of God come in the flesh. Peter, in answering Jesus' question in Matthew 16, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they give a whole bunch of answers. Oh, they say, some say this and some say that. And then Jesus asks the most important question. But but you, who do you say that I am? And that's a question every one of us needs to consider. Who do you say Jesus is? And Peter, always the spokesman, always the outspoken one, always the one who pipes up first, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus blesses him. and says, this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, you're the rock. This solid confession is on that on which I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I give you the keys of the kingdom. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. and What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so the authority of Jesus is passed on to his church. Well, that's part of this discipleship, isn't it? The, the who of the original 11 the apostles so named will recruit others to be disciples of Jesus Christ when, right away, and down through the ages, it doesn't stop. We are all called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And here's the interesting thing. While we are disciples, we're also disciple makers. Now, I use that word because it's awkward. No, because I want, to, I want you to understand, while we are disciple makers, we're not the masters. Jesus told his disciples that. Don't call each other teacher or master or father. You have one, and that is God. We need to remember that. Jesus is the master. He is the teacher. He is the Lord. We don't replace him. We can't replace him. We needn't even try to replace him, but we do want to point others to him. We want to make disciples, even as these original 11 apostles were told to make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And there's a certain time-specific aspect to this instruction. When Jesus is taking leave of his disciples at the beginning of Acts, he says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, yea, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And, and he's talking to them. He's not telling all of us, okay, you all have to pack up and move somewhere else and be a missionary. Certainly some are called to that. These 11 were definitely called to that. The church in Jerusalem was called to that. For in that generation, Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Roman army. And the Christians would spread out throughout the world. And the message of the gospel would go forth with power. It had already started. The apostles had already left, but the church at large would, would leave Jerusalem and would spread all over the world. And wherever they went, they, they took the good news with them and they made disciples. 
Now, that doesn't mean we can't stay put. Because you can make disciples where you are. In fact, for most of us, we don't even have to leave the house. We can be disciple-making in our own families. We can be teaching our children. We can be talking to our neighbors. We can be disciple-makers as we are faithful disciples of Jesus Christ in the circumstances in which God has placed us. Certainly this go therefore and make disciples of all nations had a peculiar and specific application to its original audience. And then Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we, we call upon that language whenever we have a baptism, don't we? The, the one name of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. But again, this is a specific command to the disciples, the apostles, to the church. We're not to go around, you know, just baptizing wherever, wherever we find ourselves. This is something that is to be done within the church, we believe. It is to be done within the context of, of the communion of the saints, the holy apostolic Catholic church of which, by grace, we have been made a part. And that's where baptism takes place. That's under attack today because a lot of people haven't been properly discipled. And so they think that, you know, baptism can happen anywhere, anytime. And they like to pick at the passage in Acts where Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch who says, well, here's water, why can't I be baptized? We think that that is to be normative. That's to be the case for everyone. Oh, here's water, let's have a baptism. I've been in churches where they've done that sort of thing. I was in, well, I don't know if I should call it a church. I was in a gathering, supposedly for worship, and um, they were planning a, a baptismal service. And so the man who was leading said, if anybody wants to be baptized, you know, you sign up here. And if, if you'd like to baptize someone, you sign up here. <laughs> and, and it was just a thing they were doing. If you wanted to be a participant in it, you could be at either end. You could be either going under the water or the one putting the one under the water. And that's not what we find in Holy Scripture. We find that the church is the place where baptism takes place. And we believe as Reformed Christians that this office has been given to the officers in the church and not just to anyone. As Jesus here gives it to his apostles and for the church to carry on. That's why he says to Peter, I'll build my church. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. That is to bind and to loose, to admit and to exclude those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Bring them in. Those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ, leave them out. This is the work of the church. It's not the work of us as individuals. And the church is first and foremost the teaching ministry of Christ on earth. But again, as I said, it's something you don't have to wait till Sunday to do. You don't have to be a Sunday school teacher to be a disciple maker. You can be a disciple maker in your own home, in your own neighborhood. You can be talking about Jesus wherever you are. No one will stop you. We should be on fire for our Lord and eager to speak about him to any who will listen. Now, I don't think that should make us obnoxious or, um, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be rude about our faith, but we should, be, we should be forward about it. And we can think of creative ways of doing it. We had a man in our presbytery, and he was very evangelistically minded. 
and while he was uh, studying at the Bible College in Grand Rapids, he got a job at Meyer. You know Meyer, the big uh, department store that's so busy in Grand Rapids area. He got, a, he got a job there, and he told him he wanted to work in the shoe department. And, uh, and he had, he'd thought this out. I get people seated down, and I get their shoes off them, and they're trying on shoes, so they can't get away right away. And then he would just start talking to them. Well, how long have you been in Grand Rapids? And they'd say, well, you know, and they'd talk, and they'd, and they'd ask him back. Well, oh, I came from, and I forget where he'd come from, but he, he'd go, oh, why did you come to Grand Rapids? To work at Meyer? He says, no, I'm, I'm going to seminary. I'm studying here. <laughs> and you see, they would start the conversation because he was told by the, by the you know, higher-ups in the company, you, ca- you can't proselytize at work. He said, oh, I, I was just having a conversation. They started. <laughs> and I just, see, we can think of ways of getting people to engage us about our faith if we're creative and we think about it. But I think all too often we aren't thinking about it. And how many times do we let the opportunity go by because, oh, we're just in a hurry. You know, I, I could have spoken to that one, but, but I was in a hurry. I, I needed to get somewhere else. I had, I had something else to do. And we're, we're like the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. I've got a place to go. I'm, I'm tracking that way. I can't, I can't be bothered over here. And you know, we're dealing with worse than people who have been mugged and are near death. We're, we're dealing with people who are in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus says that's who we're to fear. We're to fear the one who can, after killing the body, cast body and soul into hell, into the eternal fire. That's what we're to be concerned about. So that's why we want to make disciples. That's why we want to make disciples of all the nations. And that's the where of it all. It's, is there anywhere we're not to make disciples? No, we're to make disciples wherever we are, throughout the whole world. It doesn't mean us as individuals, but as a church. And I'm, I'm glad to be part of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I wish we had more foreign mission fields and more foreign missionaries. And I'm not alone in that. Our, uh, I think I've mentioned you before. We're, we're praying that the Lord would raise up more missionaries in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. The Lord has been gracious and given us the funds to support foreign missions. And now we need the manpower. In the past, there's been manpower but no funds, but now we're, we've got the opposite problem. We, we need the manpower. We need the disciple-makers to go out and, and to go into the whole world and to teach them to observe everything, all that I've commanded you. That's, that's a tall order, isn't it? As I said, we're not, we're not aiming for scholarly perfection here, but people need to know who Jesus is. We need to remind them at this time of year that, yes, Jesus was born in a, in a stable. He was laid in a manger, but he didn't stay there. He came to die. His birth is important because it leads to his life and his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his promised return. This is what we need to tell people. We need to tell them the whole counsel of God and not just stop with the part that makes everybody happy. You know, everybody, I mean, everybody loves a baby, right? I mean, that's, there's nothing threatening about a baby, but there is something threatening about the Son of God. In Revelation, we read that they're going to call upon the rocks and hills to cover them and to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Well, on earth, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus did not break the bruised reed. He did not snuff out the smoldering wick. But he is coming to judge both the living and the dead. And this is what we need to tell people. Because Jesus has told us that. 
He's told us who to fear. Fear the one who knows everything about you, who has willed your very life, and who has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. That's the one you're to fear. Well, we've seen the who of the original disciples and seen how that extends. We've seen the what a disciple is. We've heard where the disciples are to go and when. What about the why? Sometimes why morphs into how. I think we've already had some how, but maybe we'll have a little more. The why is because Jesus commands it. He says, do this. And that should be enough, shouldn't it? Shouldn't that be enough for us? Jesus says, do this, and we say, yes, Lord. This is the grace of our Savior. He not only says, do this, but he says, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to be with you. Even to the very end of the age. You're not going to be left on your own. Now, for a week they were, 10 days, they were on their own, and they were frightened. And they were hiding, and they were worried. Then the Spirit comes upon them. Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of power. And they go forth with that. And, and note the, the testimony that's given as they hear them speaking. Aren't these, aren't these the ones who were hiding before? Isn't this Peter and the rest of them? You know, Peter who said, oh, I don't, I don't know him at all. In a small gathering, now stands up publicly in the temple and says, repent and believe. He picks up the same message that John the baptizer, the forerunner of Christ that we sang about from Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort ye my people, speaks about the the one who will come before him, who will make straight the paths of the Lord. And then Jesus comes with exactly the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And we aren't to pick up a new message. We aren't to try to develop something else. Come to Jesus and you'll be happy. Come to Jesus and you'll be wealthy. Come to Jesus and your health will be restored. No. Our message must be the same. Repent and believe the good news that Jesus died for sinners. And that without him, you are in danger of God's eternal judgment. The kingdom is now. And Jesus is reigning. And he calls you to bow your knee and confess him before men so that he might confess you before his Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, I'm with you. Go and make disciples. Well, I've mentioned a little bit of the how. You know, you could, we could think of creative ways to talk to people. What, what do we do in our homes? Well, I hope I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know. You all know. You read the Bible with your children. You pray with your children. You sing God's praise with your children. You make use of that first and foremost great resource that God has given us, our, as we call it in the Orthodox Presbyterian, our primary standard. It's the one we ask when we ask people, do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament? It's the very first one of our membership does. Do you believe this Bible is the word of God? And its doctrine of salvation is the only true and perfect doctrine of salvation. This is our primary standard, and this is what we teach our children. Now, we don't have to stop there. We can, we can move on to our secondary standards. We can use the Westminster Confession of Faith and catechisms to teach our children. We can use the children's catechism. We can use other teaching materials that are available to us, recognizing that they rest on the primary standard of the Word of God. Every member of the church needs to say, I believe the Bible. 
we also should say, well, I, I also you know, have a lesser degree of belief and trust in the secondary standards. I believe they're founded on the Scriptures, but they're not the Scriptures. And wherever there's a conflict between what man has written and what God has written, we know the answer, don't we? We know, we know which one we have to subordinate our thoughts to. So we can use those, those two means, our primary standard of the Word of God, our secondary standard, our, our confessional teaching. If our children are really obstinate and bad, then you go to the tertiary standards. You get out the book of church order. <laughs> no, we don't do that. <laughs> but there's a degree of importance and, and commitment. You know, we're, we're first of all committed to the Scriptures above all else. And then, and then you know, we have a, we have a lesser uh, regard and, and appreciation. Well, I shouldn't say lesser, but it's, it's I'm trying to think of a... We, we uh, consent, or forget that, I forget, you know, even, even less than the membership vows, I don't remember the ordination vows, that's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> but, we're, you know, we're, we, we give um, approval, that's it, I, we approve the system of doctrine found in the, in the Confession of Catechism, and then, and then we, we give our consent, we, we say yes, as far as, as far as we know, as far as we can tell, our, our church order, the way we, we do things as a church, the way we direct our worship, the way we, we enact discipline, it all, it, we approve of it, but it's, it, our, our approval isn't as great as our consent or, or our belief, particularly in the Word of God. And I think it's important for us to remember that, that these three things, this first, second, and third standards, the Bible, confession, and the church order are intertwined. Even though the scriptures have the, the primacy and the most important, see, the others rest on them. And so in our discipleship classes and in our teaching, we use all three. But our first and foremost call is to the authority of scripture. Because in the word, God speaks. And that's why when we read the scriptures in public worship, it's so important that we do so with reverence. In fact, it's mentioned in our directory for public worship. It's why when the scriptures are read, we are, we are to give our careful attention to what God has to say. We should do that in home with our families. We should do it with our own hearts when we read. And I know I've confessed this before, and I'll, I'll be confessing it probably till the day I die, that there are times I'm reading the Bible to myself and my mind wanders, and I have to go back and start again. <laughs> and I have to chastise myself and say, you know, this is God speaking to you. You should be paying attention. Your mind should not be wandering onto these other things. Because this is a, a book that's to be treated with a holy reverence. Why? Because God is speaking in it. Because in it, I know that Jesus is with me. And that he is directing me by his Spirit. And so these are the beginnings of discipleship. This is how it all starts. It started when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? I asked you the same question. Who do you say Jesus is? And if you confess that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, give praise to God, for he is the one who revealed that to you by his Holy Spirit, that you might believe and have eternal life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you for the gift of Holy Scripture. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who strengthens and equips us. Oh Lord, we pray that we would live as those who are disciples of Jesus Christ, but also as those who want to be disciple makers. That we would be teaching our children, we'd be teaching our spouses, we'd be teaching our, our neighbors. Whatever opportunity you give to us, Lord, may we make the most of it. 
that your kingdom on earth would extend, that we'd be kept in it and others brought in, and that Satan's kingdom would indeed be destroyed, and that one day the kingdom of glory would arrive and we would see our glorious Savior as he is, and we would rejoice in his presence forevermore. So bless us as we continue in your worship, for Jesus' sake, amen.